There's a spirit here. A deeper need to understand why I am the way I am. No matter what you live through in your life, you are going to do great things. That's something that's holding me back that was passed on. What goes on with the mind and the body and the spirit. We're doing soul work. Welcome back to Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native resilience through and beyond trauma. I'm Susan Bolio, member of the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota and director of tribal projects at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. And I'm David Knoyer, a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. I'm an independent consultant who often works with Native organizations or entities that want to work with Natives. I've been lucky to work across much of Indian country and sharing stories about how Native people individually and collectively call on our strengths as well as confront our difficulties is a big part of what I do. We know that life is not always easy, and nearly every group with which I work, or someone in the group that day, is dealing with serious challenges, if not recent trauma. This isn't criticism, right? It's just the reality. This is the third episode of a series that Susan and I are hosting to consider our personal and collective histories as Native people, especially relative to trauma and resilience, our past and our future. In the first episode, we covered the concept of historical trauma and how it relates to us as Native people. And in the second episode, we discussed adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, how this kind of trauma, abuse, or disruption early in life can affect our developing brain and behavior. These are stories of trauma that have impact within a single generation across the lifespan of a baby as she grows and develops through her life course. When abuse or neglect happens early in life, the impact can be felt later in life. This is what the Adverse Childhood Experiences study showed us, as we discussed in Episode 2. Today, we're going to look at trauma across multiple generations. Researchers have discovered that not only can we display the effects from our own experience of trauma within our lifetime of a generation, we can genetically inherit trauma experienced by previous generations. Remember back to Episode 1 where we spoke about boarding schools and other earlier traumatic experiences in the colonial period, epigenetics is a scientific point of entry into why those experiences still affect us, directly or indirectly, today. Most of us understand that when we inherit biological traits from our parents, grandparents, and ancestors, we're getting them through genes or sequences of DNA that combine and get passed on when we have children, that we get our hair or the color of our eyes from one side of our biological family or the other. What is less commonly understood is that not all of what gets genetically passed down is actually from what genes we do or do not get. In order for genes to actually influence who we are in the many ways they do, they have to get expressed or read. In other words, the information is there in the DNA, but it has to interact with the body to actually create an outcome, and that's a highly variable process. The science here gets complicated, but the takeaway is that how genes are expressed can change from environmental conditions or life experiences. They can even be turned on or turned off, activated or deactivated by the body and the environment they're in. And then we can pass them on that way. This insight gave birth to a field of study called epigenetics. Epigenetics is the study of how we can inherit changes in the functioning of a gene, not just the gene itself. 
You'll get DNA from a mother and a father, but you might also inherit how their genes work or are expressed. I asked my colleague Lindsay McMurrin from the Tribal Neurosciences and Community Wisdom Project to help explain a little more about epigenetics and how it has contributed to our understanding of trauma. Epigenetics really studies how molecules act as DNA markers that influence how the genome is read. We pick up epigenetic markers during our lives and in various locations on our body as we develop and as we experience and interact with our environment. The DNA itself doesn't change, but how the sequence is read can vary wildly depending on which parts are accessible due to the influence of these markers. It really brings to the forefront this idea that experiences of previous generations impact the way that we interact with our environment, the way that we see the world, the way that we respond to things today. When we're working with communities, we often relate this information by telling about this experiment that was done at Emory University. Researchers at Emory University already knew that physiological changes had been observed in the children of people who had been exposed to traumas like war or famine, a phenomenon that has been dubbed parental traumatic exposure. They decided to investigate just how specifically they could pinpoint this process of inheritance, separate from the complex social world of growing up human. And in 2013, they published some interesting results. Scientists there conducted an experiment by teaching male mice to fear the smell of cherry blossoms by associating the scent with mild foot shocks. They'd put the mice in the cage uh, with a metal bottom. They would pipe in the smell of cherry blossom scent. And every time they did, they would electrify the bottom of the cage, um, thus signaling to the mice that you know it was danger. Two weeks after that, they bred these mice, and the resulting pups were raised to adulthood, never having been exposed to the smell of cherry blossoms or to that danger uh, in their original experiment. But when those pups caught a whiff of it for the very first time, they suddenly became anxious and fearful. So the baby mice, now grown up, were afraid of the smell that their parents had learned to associate with electric shocks. They literally inherited a fear, and in fact, more than that. Uh, researchers found they were even born with more cherry blossoms detecting neurons in their noses and more brain space devoted to cherry blossom smelling. That memory transmission extended out another generation when those male mice were bred and similar results were found. So the fear association and even a heightened physiological capacity to detect and interpret the scary smell lasted through multiple generations. So what does this have to do with this larger conversation? It was through this research that the neuroscientists showed that genetic markers thought before to be wiped clean before birth were actually used to transmit a traumatic experience across generations, leaving behind traces in the behavior and the anatomy of those future pups through this process called epigenetic inheritance. The research makes obvious suggestions about what this means for the quote-unquote molecular memory of humans. The implications of this research for Native communities today is striking. In these episodes, we've talked about how historical trauma has been passed down through generations by social institutions, and about how experiencing trauma early on predisposes children to a host of risks throughout adolescence and later. Now with epigenetics, we can see that trauma is actually passed down genetically. With everything our communities have been through, our children might be starting their lives with genetically or even physiologically developed sensitivities 
based on the traumas experienced by their parents and grandparents. It puts a different spin on some of the ways we see our youth behaving or struggling. When I work uh, in the school uh, and I'm working with teachers and other support staff that are working with our young people day in and day out, um, I often encourage them after telling them about this experiment, about this research, to remember the cherry blossoms. Because so often our people, our young people, may be reacting in fear or sensing danger when they themselves don't even understand it. I use our schools as a prime example because of the boarding school experience and because of how the educational system was used in the past systematically against our people. Science also is suggesting that a positive environment is the answer. It's possible that the impact of traumatic experiences may be epigenetically inherited via molecular memory that is passed down through generations, and new research takes this concept further, demonstrating that traumatic behavior could be reversed when it would otherwise be inherited. Researchers in Switzerland showed that behavioral symptoms associated with trauma in male mice and their offspring could actually be undone by a positive environment and environmental enrichment. For us humans, the suggestion is that a solution can be found in our own environment, a return to our traditional cultural ways of taking care of each other through positive relationships. Like much of what we've been talking about thus far in the series, learning about epigenetics cues us to look forward beyond our trauma, but also back to understand what we've gone through, look for the origins of what we face today, and also because there's a lot of ourselves to reawaken from the past. What this research proves is what traditional indigenous knowledge has always said. Memories are stored in our bodies and passed down to future generations. In this case, engaging the science really represents an opportunity to embrace our power, historically and now. Not only does it affirm us as human beings, as individuals and communities, who have reasons for being the way we are, it also affirms us as a culture that has for a very long time possessed the tools to understand intergenerational experiences. Right. And this is an important point when it comes to doing this work, to going out into the community and being a conduit for the information. It's something Lindsay and I encounter both when doing work in the community around ACEs, which we talked about last episode, and about communicating these discoveries around epigenetics. We have to let our community make this knowledge theirs again, too. This is something we touched on in our original conversation in episode one on historical trauma, and it's an important theme of the work. One of the things that I have learned through trial and error is recognizing how historical influences mm -hmm. impact this work and this project as well. I think it takes time in our tribal communities to gain trust um, and to be able to really allow that process of helping folks understand the intent, overall intent of the project. What we really want to do is empower individuals, empower families, empower communities, and those elements are built into the project. However, I think it takes time to see those doors open, just because of how historically we've always been acted upon. A huge part of why it's difficult to bring science to the indigenous communities is because for so long, 
science and research has been a dirty word in our communities. We have been researched to death and the information never comes back to our communities in a way that promotes anything positive. It's always negative. And so there's this deep aversion in our communities to science. But I've heard some elders talk before about the importance of having indigenous researchers doing research in our communities, with our communities, using that lens, that indigenous lens. We as indigenous people have been researchers all the way back, all the way back. We have always been researchers. And so part of it too is how do we reclaim and bring forth that part of who we are and telling our own stories and using our own wisdom and knowledge. Science today is starting to confirm that indigenous wisdom. So that in some ways makes it easier to bring that information back to the community. We can say, look, it's showing this and you know what, we already knew this. In this project, very intentionally, it was built into where the experts are those folks who are most impacted, our community members. And I think it, it takes a little bit of time to build trust for folks to really see that we want to amplify their voices mm-hmm. in this work. And part of empowering communities is coming back to the point about resilience. Talking about trauma is about better understanding the original issues affecting us so we can rediscover, remember, and re-enliven the knowledge and power we have when we do put ourselves in the context of our own histories. Lindsay and Susan know this well from the work they've been doing. I think oftentimes when we talk about epigenetics, uh, our minds tend to go to the negative, to those hard things that are passed down from one generation to another. However, one of the things we want to be sure to lift up with this project and this larger conversation about these themes is how positive experiences and strength is passed down from one generation to the next as well. This was really highlighted when Susan and I were doing a training for Indian homeschool liaisons and a gentleman, after hearing our conversation around epigenetics and the piece specifically around the mice and cherry blossom study was really enthusiastically agreeing with that knowledge. And he shared with us a story about how he understands this and incorporates it into the way he works with his students. He said, well, uh, of course, uh, memory transmission is passed down from one generation to the other. Why do you think that I use uh, smudging uh, with sweet grass and sage uh, with my students? And he shared about how he intuitively knows that those feelings of calm and safety and connection come about for the students he works with. I can almost smell the sage burning like those young people smell. And I think those sensory memories can take us back almost more effectively than talking about memories. There is an older gentleman on the Rosebud Reservation whose dream in his retirement is to be in a log cabin so that he can put cedar on the hot stove in the morning and smell that like he did when he was a little boy. He doesn't want to retire to Florida. He wants to go back to a very inconvenient way of living in a log cabin. But those memories 
are his source of resilience. And I think we as Native people need to be able to call on all of those senses, doing, smelling, feeling, touching, tasting, breathing, as part of our resilience too, and not just thinking and talking about it. I think that is part of why in our culture, singing and dancing is so important. When we think about the drum being the heartbeat of our nation, the heartbeat of Mother Earth, and really what it does too is it connects us back to the heartbeat of our own mother when we were in utero. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting. A lot of times people don't make that connection that that sense of calm and connection comes over us when we hear that rhythmic drumming. Because in utero, when we were inside of our mothers, all of our needs were met. We were safe. We were secure. We had everything that we needed. And so that sound gets tied to a sense of well-being. And I think that is part of why when we talk about our senses, we think about the sense of hearing and hearing the drumbeat. It's so powerful for our people. We are relational people, and so that might connect us individually to mom, to safety, to security, but the collective rhythm reminds me of a story of a community leader in Washington State who talks about getting people around the drum and beating in unison, because until we're in sync physically, the work can't begin. We really want to be clear and transparent about why we're talking about historical trauma. In the work Lindsay and I do, it's important we're really clear on the purpose of the conversations we're having. That's something we've reflected on together a lot. Sometimes, oftentimes, when we go out and we do presentations on historical trauma, uh, people will say to us, you know, that happened a long time ago. Why are we still talking about that? Why don't we just move on? Why don't people just get over it sort of thing? So we, we feel like... In talking about this and creating this podcast around historical trauma, it's important to kind of connect the dots between historical trauma, adverse childhood experiences, and how we move forward in our communities in a healthy way. And when, you know, Lindsay talked about epigenetics and how that plays out, that, that the past isn't something that just sits in the past, but it has impacts and repercussions today, whether it's at a systematic level, whether it's at a family level, an individual level, or the collective community level. It's, it's there in the consciousness, in the psyche, in the DNA of the individuals who experience that. What historical trauma, when we're talking about what it absolutely is not, is it's not about victimization, you know, saying, oh, all this stuff happened to us and so we're just going to roll over and give up sort of thing. It's also not about blaming or shaming or about staying stuck in the past. Part of understanding historical trauma and the things that happened to our ancestors is around acknowledging that and helping to heal that for them and heal it for ourselves, which then allows us to move forward in a different way. So again, it's not what's wrong with us. It's what happened to us. Moving forward in a different way means renegotiating our relationship with the past. It's important. It's retold with more truth. For Lindsay, work around truth-telling intersects with the intergenerational way trauma affects us. Other work that I'm involved in, kind of our greater Minnesota area, is to really work on this process of truth, healing, and eventual reconciliation between our Native and non-Native communities. I feel like 
this work intersects on many levels with the tribal project because of the lack of truth-telling that is so prevalent in our school systems as well as in mainstream society in general. There always has been a missing component in terms of the education that we receive in our area. I remember going to high school and and asking some teachers and uh, school board members, you know, why is it that we don't have a history course that tells the story of what's happened in our our local communities in terms of relations between our Native and non-Native communities? And unfortunately, that was met with the answer that we don't have the time or the resources to have a special elective class. Really, we're not talking about any special elective courses that need to happen. What we're talking about is not just Native history, but it's the history of Minnesota. It's the history of our country. And until we start telling those stories and recognizing the historical influences that have lasting and ongoing impact on our systems and the contemporary problems our communities are facing, then we're not going to be able to move forward into healing and change that needs to happen. There was a discussion about the art at the state capitol and these paintings that really kind of glorified the founding of this state. And the paintings portrayed the Native people as these very happy, now supplicant farmers, totally whitewashing the execution of dozens of Native warriors trying to defend their way of life. And so there was a discussion about how to tell a fuller history We've done some trainings recently in northern Minnesota with Native and non-Native people to bring this information of ACEs out into their communities. One of the things that we have heard over and over again from the non-Native people that attend the trainings and after they hear the historical trauma piece, they are ticked off. They are so angry that they never heard about this history before. And some of them maybe heard a little bit of it in college, but most of them didn't even hear it there. There was a woman in our last training who was actually, she grew up in a different country, and she had heard all sorts of information about the history of Native Americans in this country and what happened to us. So when she got to the United States, she was floored that that information was not common knowledge here. And I think it just really goes to show the disconnect between what people in this country know about the actual history of this country and what people around the world know about the actual history of this country. People do want to discuss that fuller history and understand it more. That history seems like it was long, long, long ago, but for so many people, it was yesterday. It was a breath ago. This has been the third episode of Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native resilience through and beyond trauma, narrated by me, Susan Bolio, and David Knoyer. In the next episode, we will shift toward how cycles of trauma are perpetuated at the community level and how some people are disrupting them to remember resilience.
You just heard musician Wade Fernandez from the Menominee Nation Reservation close out this episode, and we want to extend a thank you to him, to Thomas X, and to the Red Tree Singers, who also contributed music to this episode. Inspiration for this series comes from a growing number of Indigenous people and allies who are working to address resilience in the Native community. This includes podcast hosts Susan Bolio and David Knoyer, as well as the voices and stories they gathered for these series, including that of Lindsay McMurrin, who you heard during this episode. Sierra Edwards also assisted them in gathering interviews and stories. Sadie Lutmer acted as coordinating producer on this episode with sound design and additional instrumentals by Kaylin Keir. This series was supported by staff at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children and funded by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Center for Prevention. For more information, visit the podcast webpage at rememberingresilience.home.blog.